Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a sermon series called The Journey. Uh, and this sermon series is where we're going to go through the entire Bible, read through the entire Bible in a year. So uh, if you don't have a journey book, walk back here to the info table. There's a whole bunch. We started out by ordering 160 or something like that, and they all went in the first uh, three weeks. And so we just ordered another 100. So you can take one. You can get one for your brother, your cousin, your roommate, whatever. They can all have as many as they want because I don't know if we can get another 100 used by the end of this year. <clears throat> but we want you all to have one. So if you don't have one, go back there and grab one. You'll need it for the sermon today as well as uh, the rest of the year so you can know what you're supposed to be reading uh, each day. So grab one of those uh, and do that. A um, couple comments this week on if I had, since I turned 40, decided to start dressing a little more adultish. You know, I had a tie last week and a sport coat last, last, the week before that. Never fear the old uniform's back. Jeans and, and, and flannel shirt back. So just so that everybody knows, I'm still here. It's just still me. Um, anyway, so we are, as I said, on, on something called the journey. So for the month of January, even though it's February, uh, what you read this week was in January. And so we're going to do another psalm today. Uh, next, next week when we go into uh, February's w- readings will be in Exodus, Leviticus, will be in Shepherd's Fields, uh, and so we'll be moving away from the Psalms for a little bit. We'll be back in the Psalms actually in May. I think it's May. So right now, as I said, we're going to be in Psalm 23, Psalm 23. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over to Psalm 23, um, and I'll pray. Before, before we pray, I just want to say one other thing. I forgot to say this first service. Um, in case you've been, you know, completely under a rock, today's the Super Bowl. So um, whoever you want to win, whatever. Um, but here's the thing. This is like a really, really good opportunity. Even if you know nothing about sports and the person that you're friends with knows nothing about sports, this is still a good opportunity for you to say, hey, you want to come over to our house and watch the Super Bowl? And they'll probably say, yeah, because everybody's supposed to do that. Um, and then you have a great chance to hang out with someone for the entire evening. So use this as a chance to build relationships with other people, whether you watch the game or not, um, and hang out with them, eat food with them ask them questions about their life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So great opportunity here to be missional tonight or is the uh, Super Bowl. So Psalm 23, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these Psalms, the, the songbook of the Bible, uh, teaching us and showing us how David worshiped through correct theology and that right theology, right truth is supposed to cause us to worship where we worship you both in spirit and in truth. And so I pray for this morning for all of us as we look at your, as your, at your word and we see these deep truths about this amazing shepherd that you are for us, that we would be moved to worship, that this would be the proper response of all of us. Lord, I pray for myself. I know that um, any chance for me to preach or exegete or exposit your text is absolutely dependent upon you to speak through me. And so I pray that you would keep me from any pride or thoughts that I can do this on my own strength, that you would come now and speak through me. You would start with me, with all the things that have to be learned, that I would be moved, transformed, convicted, um, repentant of the things that I don't do well, and that all of us then, um, conversely, would be moved by your spirit to see in the text just how good you are and, and desire to walk with you and know you as our, as our good shepherd. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 23, likely a very familiar psalm for all of you. Uh, If you've been around funerals of any sort or if you've just watched funerals on movies, like you always hear Psalm 23. Um, 
And so I want to read it in its entirety, even though it's likely very familiar for you. I want to read it in its entirety. And then as we look at it, we're going to unpack. And here's what's likely to happen, because it's become so familiar for all of you, including myself. This week as I studied, I saw so many things that I've never seen before, because I've just become so familiar with it that I don't even think deeply about it. So I'm praying that the Lord would do that for us all this morning as we read this very familiar text, that it would become... Uh, fresh with all the amazing truths about it. So let's read it and then we'll, we'll go you know, through it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As I said, any and every funeral that we've ever been to or seen on TV or likely been a part of has read this psalm at it. And so what is it then? What is it about this psalm that causes us to, as ministers or over redemptive history for the last who knows how many years, have this psalm read at funerals. What is it about it? Uh, we don't know the exact background. Um, Calvin notes a couple things, which makes his notes, in my mind, make it even more interesting that this psalm is read at funerals. It makes it even more curious to me. What, then why do we read it at funerals? This is what Calvin says. We don't know the exact background, but he does say, that the psalm was written by David likely in a time of prosperity, not in a time of trouble, not in a time of uh, despair or having a lot of things going wrong in his life. But instead, when he was the king, he was prosperous and most things were going right in his life. Things were awesome, kind of clicking on all cylinders around him. Calvin notes as he says that because that's the case, generally when people in their lives have this kind of prosperous uh, things going on in their life, everything seems to be good, Generally, he says, most of the people at those particular moments seem to kind of push away from God. These are the times where we feel really, really independent. Like we've, we've done everything and we say, well, I don't need God right now. Everything is going awesome. And those are the times where we kind of move away. Calvin looks at that and he says, Calvin notes that there is scarcely a man when in time of abundance, there's rarely any men when times are abundance, when things are prosperous, you'll rarely find a man that will keep themselves in God's fear. You'll rarely find a man that will live continually in the exercise of humility and of temperance. And he says, but here, David does this. Temperance is not overindulging in things. Um, And he says that David is described as this kind of man. And that makes it even more curious for me then. Then why is this read in times of funerals? Because funerals in my mind seem to be the opposite of what we just described. Well, we'll talk about that soon. But what is it about this psalm that has provided for the saints over the last thousands of years such comfort and strength, hope and encouragement? I think that likely the answer, the reason why it comes uh, most commonly in funerals is in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And at the mention of death and just, just the beautiful language that Psalm 23 has, uh, and, and perhaps it's brevity, is the reason why we see this psalm so often in funerals. 
And so it mentions death, and we realize that even in the, in the midst of death, there's things going on in verses 1 and 3 and 5 through 6 where this person that's writing, David, is saying, I'm walking through what we would say, even though when I happen to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, there's nothing to fear. My Lord is with me. He's always here for me. And so that seems to bring an amazing amount of hope, comfort, strength for the generations and generations of Christians over the last thousands of years. And likely that's why it's written. So before we get into it, let's, let's all bring ourselves into kind of one common mindset. Some of you might be in this time right now. Some of you might be in a time of despair, trouble. You feel like, as verse 4 says, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Or you're in the midst of a trial or in the midst of a tough situation. You're going to see today some things about your good shepherd that are going to give you amazing hope. You're going to see some amazing truths about your good shepherd that should give you all the more reason to press into the Lord. However, some of you might not be experiencing that. Some of you might be like David, who wrote this in the time of prosperity, and still it brings him hope. So despair or or trouble might be around the corner, whether it's next week or next month or next year. We're all going to experience this sometime. It's just part of being in a Genesis 3 world. And so for those of you that might be in the midst of it right now or coming, let the, the truths about our good shepherd be things that you take in into your mind and guide you through these times of trouble. Even if it's not coming, make sure you like, write lots of notes so that you can remember these things one day when it comes. Now, um, I'm going to read it again, and I want you to notice something with me. This is, this is startling, I think. Startling. I'm going to emphasize a word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is, this is astounding language because over and over in the Old Testament, we've always, as you've been with us here anytime, in the Old Testament, time and time again, the emphasis is on community. The emphasis is on the people of God. And even as we get into the New Testament, there seems to be an emphasis on the church as a whole. And thinking individualistically is not what's generally promoted in, in, in the circles of Old Testament, New Testament writings. However, here, David unmistakably is centering in on this personal first-person relationship he has with the good shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, not, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You can see the emphasis. I, I, I counted, you can check me. I think it's 17 times he uses the first person. Um, pronoun here. So the first truth that you can get from this, even though absolutely, and I agree 100% that this, the, the overall writings of the church make sure that we, we're, we're focusing on the, the corporate nature and, and remember our standing in the body of the people of God. This particular psalm wants us to understand that our shepherd's care, though it is absolutely always corporate, is also extremely personal. Your good shepherd's care is always extremely personal. That's the first truth. It's startling, I think, that he says it 17 times. So the picture that's being painted for us in, verse, in, chapter 20, in Psalm 23 is not that the Lord is a shepherd. It's not that the Lord is the shepherd. It's that the Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. He's your shepherd. Think of it. 
He, he's not the shepherd of that one beside you or in front of you or the person you know that seems to be walking with Jesus far more. Say it in your head. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. His care is personal. His care is for me individualistically. Think of, you, uh, you got to let that truth kind of come into you and feel the weight and wonder of the fact that he knows you He's not just thinking about the other person that seems to always have it together. He's thinking about you. He loves you. He's intimately aware of every detail in your life and absolutely concerned. He is your shepherd, personally concerned with you. Some of you have never experienced this. Maybe you had parents that didn't do that. Maybe you've never experienced a deep relationship with somebody else. You've you've wanted it your whole life. And so this concept of extreme personal care of someone else giving it to you is a foreign thing to you. But this is a truth about your good shepherd. He absolutely is extremely personal with you. He's always with you and you are never alone. Ever. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus is referred to as the chief shepherd in verse 4. And as he's referred to in the chief shepherd in verse 4, it comes right after verses 2 and 3, which he's telling the elders in the church that they're supposed to be shepherds of the, of the church. And so he says, as I'm the chief shepherd, you should do this as, as shepherds of the church. So let me read it to you and let me make my point of what I'm trying to say. Because I want to tie it into this personal nature of, of uh, Christ. Actually, I have it here. So what am I doing? So this is what it says. Peter's writing to those that are elders and he tells them that he wants to sh- them to shepherd the flock of God. So those who are elder pastors, there's, he uses the, the um, illustration of shepherding. So I've never met a shepherd, I'm not a shepherd, and I don't know a whole lot of things about sheep. However, God in his infinite knowledge decided for me to understand how to lead a church by calling me a shepherd and you sheep. And so I'm supposed to understand how to lead you by understanding how shepherd leads sheep. Now, I don't know anything about them, but if God uses that example, I probably should start learning, right? And I, I have been. So um, I don't know why I said that. So anyway, um, so he tells me this. He tells me as the, as the elder or pastor, Jack and I, that this is the way that we're supposed to shepherd the church. And then right after this, it says in verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, he's gonna do these things. He's gonna give us an an unfading crown of glory. So one can surmise that if Jesus is the chief shepherd and he's telling me to shepherd this way, that he clearly shepherds that way. He clearly shepherds that way perfectly. So here's what he tells me to do. Therefore, that's what he does. Listen, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's what he does. He has his flock and he shepherds every one of them personally. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. So he exercises oversight, not because he feels like he has to, but instead it's willingly. He wants to. He absolutely deeply desires continually to be intimately there with you. And then it says, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The Lord's not after shameful gain as he, as he shepherds you. Instead, he's eagerly wanting to shepherd you. Think about that. All the things that you eagerly want to do. In that same way, Christ eagerly wants to shepherd you personally. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Christ is not ever domineering you. Not ever. Beating you into some kind of submission. Instead, it says being an example to the flock. He leads you, no question. 
We'll see that soon. But he's always leading you as the perfect, gentle shepherd, giving you the best example of how it can happen. So when we see here that the Lord is extremely personal in his care with us as the shepherd, we see some examples of how he does it. He doesn't dominate you. He does it willingly. And he eagerly, eagerly wants to do it. So you're never in his way for him to get on to the better things. You are the object. You are the goal. You are the one of his affections. How does he do that for everybody? Because he's God. But don't ever feel like you're just a stepping stone to somebody else better. You are the end goal. He is intimately and personally deeply desiring to shepherd you. Feel the weight and wonder of that. You. The next one. Because of that, we'll see in verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Literally, this is I shall not lack. I shall not lack. David is writing how abundantly God provides all of his necessities. Abundantly. He doesn't just supply them. Abundantly he he provides them. Therefore, we can see this as true for us. The good shepherd never stops giving to you. He never stops giving to you. Now, you know the caveat I'm going to say. (laughs) He's going to give you what he knows he should give you. So you may have a deep desire for Xboxes and and gold chains and, and wave runners, but that might not be what he wants you to have, right? Jet skis. But he has the deep desire to always continually give you exactly what you need. I shall not lack. I shall not lack. Now, this is where I think it gets pretty interesting because Calvin points out something that's uh, pretty amazing. Calvin is going to make an argument by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Therefore, looking at the life of David, who, who never lacked, as the king, I mean, think about this, as the king of Israel, the people of God, where God would just do whatever, he, well, he still does, but would do whatever he wants to provide for the king, he never lacked. He was the king of the people of God in this time. No one can say that even now besides Jesus, right? But he's in heaven. So physically, a human, a fallen human at this particular time was the king of the people of Israel. Imagine what he lacked. Nothing. Nothing. None of us will ever know that kind of supply, physical supply, even though we live in the day and age of the internet. He never, ever lacked for anything ever. Calvin looks at that and he makes this amazing argument, which if I know my own heart, I don't live this way. This is what he says. I'll read it once and then if you don't understand it because it was written 500 years ago in another language, I'll explain it. Um, It is certain that the mind of David by the aid of temporal prosperity which he enjoyed was elevated to the hope of everlasting inheritance. This is what he's saying. It is absolutely certain in the mind of David that since he experienced this amazing temporal, short-lived prosperity that he enjoyed, that because that happened, it didn't cause him to act like I said before, like I do. Well, everything's fine. This is where I don't feel like, I, in my mind, I would never say it, but when everything's fine, I just feel like I don't need God. I'm a little more independent because I got stuff. And he says, in David's mind, as more temporal prosperity is added around him, then his mind then is not going to hope in that at all, but instead it's elevated to the hope of everlasting inheritance. That is absolutely what seems to never happen to me. 
the more stuff is around me, I don't say, well, wow, that makes me hope more in my everlasting inheritance and not this. The reverse is what seems to happen to me in my selfish heart. Well, I've got stuff, then everything's secure and I'm good. Oh, yeah, God, I'm supposed to hope in my everlasting inheritance, salvation, not my stuff. Which means this. Calvin's making an argument. I think he's dead right. If you live like me, which please, I hope you don't, but you might be. We're doing it wrong. We're simply doing it wrong. Abundance that God gives us, especially here in Western America. And let me just make my case because you might be feeling like it's not you because you had to eat ramen noodles the last week and you make nothing and you're getting your entire check back. You, you don't even make money. You don't have to file taxes because you barely make money. Like you're one of those. I remember like, I don't even have to file taxes. I make four grand a year. Um, here's the deal. Every single one of you in this room are in the top 1% of the richest people in the entire world. Every one of you. Every single one of you. No matter how much money you make, 99% of the people in the world are poorer than you. Every one of you will have more education opportunities. You might fail out. More education opportunities, more meals in your life, more things in your life, more invites to people's houses and more free things given to you than the other 99% of people that live in the world. So I know we all feel like I ain't got nothing, but there are so many more people that don't. Getting out of the country makes us aware of this. So... You are the, the typical Western American, just like I am, that will struggle with this. And if we find ourselves not depending on God and more relying on ourselves, the more things are around us, we're absolutely doing it wrong. The more that stuff is around us, the more that abundance is around us, then David is saying, or, and I think Calvin is saying, then our increase in our salvation should hope our increase in our hope and our salvation should be happening. So as you get stuff, don't ever fall into the danger that ever falls ever into the, I'm independent now. Always be thankful. The Lord's blessing you. Don't let it become your God and lift your hope, as he says, elevate your hope above those things that you have to everlasting inheritance. And when you do that and you live in this temporal prosperity, then you're far more likely to hold those things loosely in your hands because they're, they're not your, you're not your banking on that as your goal and your love and your God. It's far more easier to give those things away. So, a little side note though, because as I read this, I, I ask myself, so I'm still under number two here, but I'm not really talking about those things I was just saying. I, I just had this random question in my head, which is, why do people read this in funerals? Why, why does verse one comfort people? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like, in a funeral, I, I do lack, big time. I lack the person. I want them back. Why is it that when they're not, he, why does that bring comfort? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I do want, I do lack. That person that was near and dear to me, I want them back here. I lack them right now. How does that bring comfort? Why is it that funerals this is read and seems to be bringing enormous amounts of comfort? So in, in Job chapter one, when all of his children are gone, everything, he loses them all. 
storms, etc. It's clearly, you know, you can see it's the, the devil doing it, etc. But as that happens, at the very close, Job says something like this. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so as things are gone, God, he still chooses to bless the Lord as all things are taken away. So here's why I think that this particular psalm brings blessing. Because even when the Lord takes away things in our life, it never means that he doesn't continue to give. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So even though things are being taken away, the Lord is still always giving. He never stops giving. And in those circumstances, it becomes even more real that the gift of himself is continually offering to you. And so you never have lack because he's not offering you stuff. He's offering you himself and nothing else will ever satisfy you more than the gift of himself. So the second thing is the Lord never, ever stops giving. The next one is this on two and three. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want you to notice those verbs that are being used. Who's doing the work? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He's the one that restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's clear as we read that, that God is the active agent in those verbs, and we are the passive recipients of all things that are happening. Now, we've already said that he doesn't lead us in such a way where we're forced. He wants to do it. But clearly, as he does it, he is... He is the one that is initiating and causing the things to happen, and we are the passive recipients. What is it that he's doing, though? What are the things that he's doing? He's making us lie down in green pastures, and he's leading us beside still waters. Those two things are words of refreshment. They're saying that he leads us to peaceful places of rest. In verse 3, it says, he restores my soul, or Calvin uh, translates this, he converts my soul. He is, it's the conversion of the soul here. The Hebrew in that word is to make anew or recover. So he's either making you the new man, making you into a new creation, or he's recovering the man that you were first in Adam and bringing you back to who you're truly supposed to be. So Calvin argues that this is actually conversion. So he's restoring or converting your soul and then leading you into paths of righteousness. So all this that he's given you, refreshment and restoration of soul, all these things are amazing good graces. So what we can get out of this is this. Our third truth is that shepherd provision that he gives to us is absolutely based on his grace and not our ability. You and I are not doing any of those things there. He's doing every single thing there. He's taking the lead, actively making these things happen. It's not at all based on our abilities. Praise the Lord, right? you like me, you're like, praise the Lord, because my abilities seem to be pretty nil whenever it comes to things. <laughs> Thank goodness, not based on my ability. Perhaps you're awesome, and you feel like, well, my abilities can go pretty high. That's good. Um, but his will always go further. His are always infinitely better. And so it's not based on your ability, but everything that's happening is absolutely based on his grace. By his grace, he makes you righteous. By his grace, he leads you into paths of righteousness. By his grace, he enables you to walk in righteousness through the middle of everything. He does all of this. He does it all. And you are a recipient of this grace. That's an amazing truth. That he he is totally trustworthy as the good shepherd to lead you in all these things. Why does he do this? This fourth truth is, is pretty amazing. He leads me in passive righteousness, and it says right here, 
for his name's sake. Verse three ends with for his name's sake. So the fourth truth about your good shepherd is everything he does, the leading to his grace. And I would say everything he does is for his own glory. It's not for you to be elevated as what's awesome. And everybody thinks, oh, you know who's awesome? Fred. Fred's awesome. I mean, look at him. Everything's happening to him. (sighs) Worship Fred. No one does that, right? The reason why he leads you to his grace, the reason why anything is happening in your life is not for your glory, but instead for his own glory. Over and over in the scriptures, we've shown this over and over. We can pull up, I'm not gonna have time to pull up scriptures. I can show you if you really want to later. But all that God does, all the things that he does are primarily for his name's sake, for his glory, and secondarily for our joy. Everything that happens for his glory always happens for our joy. It's not for our glory. Now, um, there's a connection I don't want you to miss between verses three and four. This is pretty astounding. So everything sounds great in verses two and three. He's making me lie down in green pastures. That sounds great. I love green pastures. And lying beside still waters, perfect. Maybe the fish are biting and it's not all choppy and I'm not gonna fall out of the boat. Sounds great. He's restoring my soul. Sounds awesome. Leads me in paths of righteousness. The paths that the Lord leads me are always righteous paths. That sounds great. So don't take verses two and three and make that a section and then move over to a whole second idea and say verse four doesn't connect. Verse four absolutely connects. There's, there's a change where he's the active one doing it. He's the active verb. Now verse four is going to say that we are actively walking, but we need to make sure we connect verses three and four. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his glory. And what do those paths of righteousness sometimes look like? Even though I walk, this is what the paths sometimes look like. Because we think, oh, God's leading me through a path of righteousness. Well, it's got to be bunnies and balloons and everything's fine all the time. I mean, it's God, right? Well, not always. This is what it looks like sometimes. He leads me into a path of righteousness that sometimes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, that's not what I thought was going to happen. That wasn't, that wasn't my category of how God leaves his people sometimes. Don't want you to miss how verses three and four, this is tough stuff here. Leading us into paths of righteousness will sometimes involve walking through the valley of of shadow of death, tough suffering. Why? Well, I mean, that's, that's the big question. Why? Why would he do that? Why not bunnies and balloons? Why not ease and comfort and always, always that way? If you're in the midst of it right now, I want you to, I want you to hear my answer as, I don't want you to hear it as, Suck it up, and I promise you it's going to get better. Because it's very difficult to believe that in the midst of it. But this is just the way everyone answers me whenever I talk to them that's gone through a tough time. And I think this is why. This is the answer why. Because it's clear to us. I think all throughout the scriptures and in everybody, people, Christians that walk through stuff, it's clear that he takes us through these other experience, these, these experiences sometime. Because when we get on the other side of it, and it's finally over. The wreckage of it is tough. We walk through the valley of shadow of death and we're on the other side. We see that we're actually now in a better place. We see that we went through something tough and he allowed it to happen because now that I'm on the other side, it really was a path of righteousness. It's made me more righteous. It's made me more Christ-like. Now, certainly some of these things are 
our sinful thoughts and, and actions. Sometimes we certainly bring on the valley of shadow of death. We bring on the things ourselves. And he still will allow you to go through it. It's not even his design, but he will allow you to go through it. But in the end, it's still going to be a path of righteousness because after it's over, you will be closer to him. Now, I want you to see something here that uh, I think is pretty amazing. We're going through this path of righteousness. It's going to be tough. David literally calls it the valley of the shadow of death. Whenever I'm in those kinds of situations, everything inside of me screams out, I'm scared to death. Don't want this. Nothing in me wants to go through this. How am I going to get through this? Maybe you're in it right now. Notice the proclamation of David there at the end of verse four. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Even though I'm going through this terrible path and I, I don't want to go through it, it's, it's what I would call the path of the valley of the shadow of death. David says, since God is leaving it, leading me through there, I have nothing to fear. I want, I want you to, here's, here's the fifth one. The fifth one. Your shepherd leaves you nothing to fear. He leaves you nothing to fear. I will fear nothing when it comes to walking through the valley of the shadow of death, whether that's death itself or any awful experience that's going on in my life. In the midst of deep darkness and difficult times, I have nothing to fear. And David shows us that we have nothing to fear in this particular moment. He's going to do something with his language as a, as a device, uh, a writing device to show us that he has nothing to fear. Notice his writing device. Thus far, as he's been talking about God, he's been referring to God in the third person. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then right there, there's the turn. He shifts away from verses one and two of talking about God. And all of a sudden he gets right into the middle of the trial. And as he gets into the middle of the trial, he can't talk about God anymore as some entity. Instead, in the middle of it, he looks right at God. Instead of talking about God, he starts talking to God. And he makes this literary shift where he says, now I'm talking in the second person, straight to you, God. And so I know that I have nothing to fear because you're with me. Not talking about he's with me. Not talking about the shepherd's with me. You're with me. He doesn't say the shepherd's rot. You comfort me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. You are with me all the days of my life. And so he makes this literary shift for us to be able to see David is so wrapped up in this moment of trusting in the Lord and not fearing. He even makes the shift over from third to second person so we can see that God is absolutely there for us and we have nothing to fear. Calvin says he became victorious over fear and temptations in no other way than by casting himself wholly on the protection of God. Notice this is, I think, pretty interesting language. This is Maybe a side note. For you are with me. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, in Proverbs, spare the rod, spoil the child. Think about rod and you're like, okay. So your rod, your instrument of discipline comforts me. My kids don't talk like that. My kids don't say, the spanky spoon, mm, I love it. Let me just hold it. I want to I wanna carry around the spanky spoon. It brings me so much comfort. When this is out, it's bad. Um, when you have kids and they're in that thing, you can call it spanky spoon if you want. But um, we don't. We don't spare the spanky spoon in the chamber's household. Um, 
only up to a certain age is useless after five. Anyway, um, and so you read that and you're like, wait a second, the rod comforts me. That, I don't like that. What? what? Um, I think that what, that's not the way to read it. Instead, read it this way. Your rod and your staff. What are the rod and the staff? They are the things that the shepherd uses to be the shepherd. Therefore, if the rod and staff are here, so it's not necessarily saying these things here. If I just give me two sticks, I'm comforted. That's, what I, that's all I need. That's not what he's saying. If you have the rod and the staff, who also is there? The shepherd. So he's not saying the rod and staff comfort him as much as he's saying, you comfort me. That's exactly, your rod and your staff comfort me. But look right above that. You are with me. So as he says, the rod and staff comfort me, he's literally talking about God himself is with him. And that's what comforts him. God brings him the comfort. So we have nothing to fear because God is absolutely with us. He's absolutely with us. Now, verse five is a little bit of a shift here. I'm gonna stay in the shepherd language, but verses one through four talk about God as our shepherd. And then verses five and six kind of make this little shift and they start talking about God more as a host where he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my hands. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So he's the host bringing in people into his home and he's hosting them. Uh, I'm going to stay with the shepherd language. I just think it's easier. Um, but you can put the word host instead of shepherd. You can call him the good host if you want. Um, but we're not talking like ghosts or something. We're talking about Jesus. All right, so next one. You prepare a table. Now, if God's going to prepare a table, he's not going to put out, you know, the cheap Walmart Tostitos and give you some Ace Cola from Kroger. You know what I mean? He's not giving you the bad stuff. You prepare a table before me. So if God's going to prepare a table, it's going to be awesome. Like it's the best meal ever. You've ever had and I've ever had ever. Think of your best meal. Nothing compared to the Lord preparing a table for you. God is going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So we're talking about the shepherd preparing a, a table for us and the cup that he gives us is so full, it's literally overflowing continually. The sixth thing you need to know about your shepherd slash host is that he is going to satiate you. That might not be a word you're, you're familiar with. I didn't want to say satisfy because satisfy doesn't necessarily carry it all. I think satisfy is half of it. He's going to satiate, so he's going to fill me completely. And as I'm filled completely, then I am going to be satisfied. He's going to completely satiate me with not necessarily stuff but himself. He's going to fill, he uses the language of preparing a table so we know it's going to be a feast. It's going to be awesome. He gives us this cup and this cup literally overflows and it's continually overflowing. And when he does this, our shepherd satiates us. This, this promise in Psalm 23 comes to its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation chapter 7, a prophecy one day of, of how this will happen. In Revelation 7, 17, it says this, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's interesting. So now I'm all, all of a sudden thinking, in the very end, the end times, when it's all going down, he's still calling himself a shepherd, reaching back to Psalm 23, and we'll see another place. He's still calling himself the shepherd. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them. That's what we've been talking about, making us, leading us. He will guide them to, listen to this, springs of living water. That sounds like to me like cups overflowing. So the promise in Psalm 23 ultimately comes prophesied and ultimately is our good in, in Re Revelation 7, but it's still true today. Still true today that the Lord our God 
will fill us and satisfy us with himself. Our ultimate satisfaction will not come in stuff. Don't try to let stuff fill you. Don't let it try to let stuff satisfy you. Anything that you try to fill this, this place in your heart with to be satisfied, it will ultimately not. That place is ultimately and only designed for God. I've had countless conversations with people that try to fill and satisfy themselves with things. Relationships, food, job, money. It doesn't matter. Fill in, fill in the blank of whatever you think that you try to fill and satisfy with. It never does. Only Christ himself will. Verse six is where I just get almost giddy because this is my, this is my favorite two last ones. So, verse six. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. So he's, in verse five, satiating us. And then in verse six, he makes this, I mean, unbelievable promise. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. The surely can be only, one version had ah. I mean, I don't know where they got ah from. What Hebrew word was ah. But surely, and then it says, goodness and mercy so this, this Hebrew word goodness is tob, and it can be translated as goodness, but it often is translated all, all throughout the Old Testament as pleasantness or agreeable or excellent or good, as in whenever this presence is around me, it's an agreeable, pleasant um, person or thing around me. So tob means the, the pleasantness of the existence of this thing that's around me. It's always pleasant. It's always lovely. I always think it's awesome. It's always excellent when it's around me. It's a pleasantness of being around me. It's, it's hard word. We don't have a word for that, but that's the Hebrew word tob. So surely, tob and mercy. Now, mercy is, is it's a good word. The Hebrew word is chesed. You got to get it down there. It's nasty, right? Chesed. We can do it in the winter really easy. Chesed. And this means goodness or steadfast loving kindness. This is the covenant, absolute, never-ending loyalty. This is the faithfulness of God. This is his mercy. This is the chesed. So surely the pleasantness of him, all the best things, it's always going to be remarkably excellent that him around me and his never-ending, unceasing, loving kindness, steadfast, faithfulness, covenant, loyalty, those things shall follow me. Man. And we haven't even got to the best part yet. So we already stand Tob and Chesed. We got those two. And then we see, follow me. Follow me. Now, we have follow me in our mind as, okay, I'm walking around and here I am going. And then he's just kind of following me and he's like, still there with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. And so we just kind of feel like this ho-hum, going to follow you around, shrug your shoulders if you'll let me come with you, kind of follow. That's not what it means. This word follow means to pursue or run after or secure or to aim at as to eagerly secure no matter what, I'm going to get it. So this is a unrelenting pursuit of you. An unrelenting pursuit of you with all of his tobe and chesed. All of his, I know it's nasty, I'm sorry, I'll stop doing it. I'll say chesed from now on. All of his unrelenting pleasantness of excellence of all who he is following you around the steadfast unbelievable never-ending goodness faithfulness coming after you and he's promising you 
that it's never going to cease pursuing you. Sixth truth, seventh truth, whatever we are. Number next, your shepherd pursues you with a steadfast, his steadfast love, his goodness and his mercy. Goodness and mercy, Tob and Hesed are pursuing you continually, no matter if you can't see it, no matter if you can't feel it, no matter if you don't think it's there, his goodness and his mercy, the shepherd's goodness and mercy are pursuing you continually. Now, I want you to be clear here. It's not like, because we're talking about attributes of God. These are attributes of God. It's not like he can kind of peel off the attributes of goodness and mercy and say, follow them around. I'll be over here chilling. You know, I got the game to watch. And so these attributes of him are just kind of following you around, pursuing you like, there they come, goodness and mercy. It's not like that, all right? Because as David writes about these things, these goodness and mercy, he's always connecting it back to the person, God. And so when he says goodness and mercy, he's describing with, with no level of fullness, God himself and saying God himself is going to pursue you. Your good shepherd is going to pursue you continually. This is why it's my favorite. I mean, think about that for a second. The good shepherd, Jesus, God himself, has an unrelenting pursuit of you. Just like the first one, and it's very personal. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you could ever conceive. And he has an unrelenting pursuit of you. That's crazy. I, that's almost too much for me to believe. Now, my favorite one. How long is that going to last? I mean, seriously, it's me. He knows I'm going to let him down. He knows I'm going to fail. He knows I'm going to be like the worst person to follow, to pursue after, I should say. I mean, if anybody doesn't have it together, it's me. Don't have it together going to mess it up, going to make him tired of me. I stink at everything. That, maybe that's how you feel sometimes. Not always. Best one there is. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then when I'm in heaven, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Eighth truth. Your shepherd's relationship with you and the pursuit will never end. Never it will never end. That's, that's remarkable. That's, can, you, can you let that fall into your head and remotely try to think about this? Never ends. Forever. Every day. Every day in heaven. New mercies, new wonders, new amazement of this amazing shepherd where he continually fills you. He continually pursues you with goodness and mercy. And you feel new avenues and new levels of goodness and mercy. New Tob and Hesed. Every, I thought I had enough Tob and, and, and uh, pleasantness of his surroundings and Hesed of steadfast enough. But even more. But even more. Isn't it possible that I could one day end? Jonathan, this, this is not planned. Jonathan Edwards has this little uh, illustration he uses about walking up a mountain. Where, so he's, he's walking up this mountain. He sees this big cloud cover and he's like, okay, that's the end. Like that's the ceiling of anything I can get with God. So I'm going to travel up this mountain and I'm going to get up there and I'm going to be finally at the ceiling of God's stuff. And he gets up and he goes above the cloud cover and he sees like a whole new level of everything. And it wasn't until he got above the cloud cover that he saw, <laughs> well, there's a whole new, mo- like it's more. 
And it seems to be never ending. And he does the same thing and he gets finally above that cloud cover. Whole new thing. This is the experience in some kind of illustrative fashion of how it's going to be for us in heaven. As soon as you feel like, oh, there's no more Tobe and Hesed that I can experience. And you finally get up to it, cloud cover, you see, whoa, look at all that. Never going to end, forever. An unrelenting pursuit of your soul. He's going to restore it. So, for all of eternity, his pursuit will continue and his presence will continue with you. So if you're in the midst of trial right now, or it's around the corner, think about these promises. This, this is unbelievable. This is how I want to close. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus literally calls himself the good shepherd. Now, as I've been going through Psalm 23, you've probably heard me sprinkle here and there, saying that the good shepherd, I wasn't using the big, huge term God, but I kept saying Jesus. Why would you keep saying Jesus? Well, because I think it's Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God, and so it is God. And I know that bakes all of our minds and we can't understand it. But it's Jesus. And Jesus is here going to, in verse, ch- chapter 10, verse 11 of John, refer to himself as the good shepherd and talk about these things, about who he is as the, the good shepherd in Psalm 23. And I want to conclude this way. And I want to I ask this question. How is it then, is it possible for us to experience the Lord as our shepherd forever? When's it going to end? All the days of our life and forever. It's never going to end. How is that possible? How's that possible? It's in John 10. Verse, verse 11, look. We're going to go 11 through 18. I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So there are fake shepherds and they stink and they don't do anything. They're out for themselves and they don't follow them. He flees because of the hired hand and look at that. He cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus cares as the good shepherd. And he says it again in verse 14, like in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's something that's happening between the shepherd and the sheep, Jesus and his children, where we absolutely, he knows us and we know him and that never ends. Nothing can mess with that. I know my own and they know me just as a father knows me and I know the father. So (laughs) think about how well the father knows Jesus. I mean, is that even describable? How intimately well for eternity past, the father knows Jesus. And he says, just like that, our relationship is the same. We know each other. That'll blow our minds for the rest of the life, our life. And then he keeps going, <laughs> even better. Verse 16, we'll come back to, it says, I owe the sheep that are not this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so, there will, so that we will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me. That's a remarkable statement. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. So how is it that he can say the never ending pursuit of the shepherd will always be, it's all the days of our life and forever. It's right there in those texts. He says it five times that he's the one that lays down his life. He says it five times. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I lay down my life. I lay it down of my own cord. I have the authority to lay it down. He tells us five times that he's going to lay down his life. And then he also says, take it up again. He's going to go to the cross and die and also be resurrected. And that's the gospel. And that good news gospel is the linchpin that absolutely secures the fact that you and I will never ever have an ending to his pursuit of us. Ever. The reason why he can say that is because he is the one that willingly lays down his life and is raised three days later. The only way that our sin can be forgiven is because the Lord, our good shepherd, who is eternity, for all of eternity, been the Lord shepherd, went and laid down his life for us. And by doing that, he reconciled us to the Father through the death of his cross. And that he rose from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death, and has ultimate power that even though we die, we will absolutely still live forever because our Savior Jesus Christ, our shepherd, laid down his life and then picked it back up again. So here's the thing. These eight truths are for believers. Believers in Jesus only. They're not for every person born. They're for believers in Jesus. So if you are a believer in Jesus, these things are amazing as you walk through trials or if you're going to walk through trials or just as you live life. But I don't want to miss this. Verse 16 is key. If anybody here thinks that they're not a believer or say that they don't believe in Christ, I want you to not miss verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, they're supposed to be here. They're going to one day be sheep. They're going to one day be my children, but they're not here right now. They're somewhere else. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're my sheep, but they're not in this fold right now. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. One day there will be a time where I will pursue them, and I will know them, and I will restore or convert their soul, and they will come to know righteousness, and they will come to walk down the path of righteousness. They will be a child. And so here's the thing. You might be one of those sheep that aren't in the fold right now, but will be one day. And that from eternity past, God has prepared that you would be. And through the sound of my voice, it's not me, it's, it's the Holy Spirit calling you right now saying, come, trust in what he's done for you on the cross and become a child of his. Experience this unbelievably, unbelievably good shepherd of your soul. Be saved. Trust that Jesus died on the cross for you in your behalf. You were supposed to die, but he did. So all of his perfections given to you, all of your sin was put on him. And now, because he rose again, you will live again forever. If you aren't a believer, right, right now, today's the day. Today. And for those that are Christians, don't let this verse 16 just kind of pass you by and say, I hope they listen. Because verse 16 is absolutely our mission. Hey, you know people that are not of the fold. We don't know who they are. We don't know if they are or not. We just know that they li- they're, they're living and they're not believers in Jesus. And so your job and my job as Christians is to go tell them about Jesus so that they will become. We have no idea the results. Those are the Lord's. But verse 16 calls every single Christian in this room to mission calls us all to say they can hear the voice of God if I go and tell them about Christ 
he may call them to his flock. That's pretty astounding. So this is what I want us to do. In time of response here, we're going to sing a few songs. If you are a Christian, I want you to rest in these eight truths and just be gloriously overwhelmed by them. And think about verse 16 as your mission. If you're not a Christian, if you know that you're not a believer in Jesus and all this shepherd talk is new to you and salvation and cross and sin and you just, you understand it, you hear the voice, but it still isn't clear. Or maybe you just want to talk. Today's the day for you to trust Christ and be forever forgiven and that he would be your good shepherd pursuing your soul every day. Today, today's the day, right now. I'm going to be right back here. Talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. If you don't talk to me, talk to the person you came with. They can do that as well. I'm going to pray, and however the Lord's leading you right now, just stand and respond with me. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love and mercy you've given to us in Christ. Be with us now as we respond. I pray, God, that for those that are believers, they would just be amazed and rest in this truth that you are a good shepherd and be called to mission and take up the task. For those, Lord, that aren't believers, that they would trust Christ right now. They would talk to me, they would talk to the person they came with, and they would become believers today and then forever experience this unbelievable pursuit of our shepherd, of our soul. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.